The best parents that I know work themselves out of a job. The best parents that I know in, in normal, healthy situations are those that over the course of a child's life is able to raise that child and discipline that child and instruct that child so that when they become 18, when they become a man, when they become a woman, that child is now a full, grown, and capable adult, able to live within the pressures of this world, within the brokenness of this world, and survive this world. Not only survive in this world, but thrive in this world. But for all of you that have raised children and all of you that are raising children, what you know about that is that to raise a child that way, to raise a child in a world in which there is pedophilia and a world in which there is bullying and a world in which there is, there is constant threat kind of peeking around every corner, you know that to raise a child that way means to raise a child and to allow them to take risks to allow them to take risks, to not be hovering around them every second of every day and wrapping them in bubble wrap and leaving them in the basement and hoping that kind of it all works out in the end, but instead allowing them to live their life and to enjoy and to know and to experience and to even fail at some things. You know, last year, Gracie Kate began kindergarten. And she's beginning kindergarten, and y'all, I mean, you know, I mean, that moment, I, I, I'm not a super emotional dude, but I'm riding to the school and I'm picturing her in the, in the hospital room and we, we got her and I'm, I'm fast forwarding and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm just a, a, a moron, I guess, because I'm picturing her and she's in her wedding dress, you know, and I'm on the way to kindergarten. And Gracie, she's fired up about it. And so she goes, man, she's got the, the, the hair and the bouncing curls and all that. And she goes bebopping through the White Plains Elementary School. And she's like, Dad, you, can, you, don't, you just dropped me off right here. And I said, well, babe, we're not going to do that on day one, okay? Day one, Dad's going to go with you. I know that humiliates you. I know you're not real fired up about that, but Dad's going to go with you. And, so I'm, and she's not worried in the least. We go into the, the room, we go into Miss Johnson's room. I've not heard about Miss Johnson for two months, building up to that from Gracie Kate. And I start looking at five and six-year-olds like a TSA agent looking for terrorists. And, and you start, you're there and you, because you realize, I can't fix this. I can't make this easy. I can't make them like you. I can't make them be nice to you. I can't keep your world together, that this is the beginning of something. This is the beginning of the moment in which I have to push you out the door and allow you to begin taking risks in your life, risks which sometimes are going to wound you, risks which sometimes are going to hurt you, risks sometimes in which you're going to succeed. But what all of us know is that if our children are to become the men and the women that God has intended for them to be, we can't wrap them in bubble wrap. Instead, we have to let them have scars. We have to let them be beaten down. We have to let them face discouragement. We have to let them face hardship. And brothers and sisters, our faith is the same way. Our faith is the same way. The kingdom of God is the same way. That if you find a man or a woman of God who has seen the power of God flow through them and move in their life, what you will find is you will find a man or a woman that knows what it is to live and take risks for the kingdom of God. 
to do things they're not entirely settled on, to do things they're not entirely comfortable with because they know that if they are going to mature and if they are going to grow and if they are going to bear witness to what God is able and willing to do through them, they're going to have to get outside of what they can do on their own. And this morning we're going to hear Jesus teaching us teaching us as we await the last day of how it is that we are to live courageously, boldly, diligently awaiting his return. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We are in the Olivet Discourse. This is perhaps Jesus' most complex sermon. It is his final sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'll remember where we've been, they've asked, the disciples have come to Jesus and they have asked Jesus, what are we to expect in the last days? When are you going to return? What are we to expect until you do return? And so we've been walking through that for a couple of chapters now. The last time that we were together, Jesus has begun a series of parables, a series of three parables. And the parable that we looked at last, year, last week, or not last week, a few weeks ago now, was the parable of ten virgins. And in the parable of the ten virgins, we, we are taught by Jesus that as we await his return, that we are to watch vigilantly. This week, we're going to be shifting gears and we're going to be going and taking that a step further in the parable of the talents. And what Jesus is going to show us is that not only are we to watch vigilantly, but that we are to work diligently. So if you have your Bibles, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 25. We'll begin in verse 14 and read through verse 30. God's inerrant and sufficient word says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he had made the two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus tells us the story about 
a wealthy master. And this master is not just kind of wealthy, not just a little bit wealthy. This master is like Jeff Bezos wealthy. He's the, the CEO and the founder of Amazon. Just last week or the week before, Forbes has announced him as being the wealthiest man in modern history, even when adjusted for inflation at a cool $151 billion. And so the kind of wealth that we see in this master is that level of wealth. You see, he says that he gives one man five talents, and he gives another man two talents, and he gives another man a single talent. But a talent was not, just, was not necessarily a, a, a type of currency, a denomination of currency. A talent was weight. This dude is we- measuring his money not by the denominations of the currency, but by how many pounds or tons of it that he has. And so he gives one man five talents, and a single talent could be 20 to 30 years of a normal man's wages. More than half of a lifetime, an entire working life is one talent. And this man has given away eight at a single time. And we don't even know, it doesn't even appear as though this is the entirety of this man's wealth. So what we're talking about here is not tens of dollars, not hundreds of dollars, not thousands of dollars, but at a minimum, we are talking about millions and millions of dollars. And so he goes and he offers it and he distributes among three of his servants. Now, these three servants have just had an extraordinary opportunity. Because what's unique about that word servant is it means really bond slave, bond servant. So these men are totally at this man's mercy. When it comes to their master, their master determines everything about their life. Not just their income, he determines their families, he determines their work, he determines their, uh, their paychecks, he determines the, what happens to their children, he determines everything about their life. That what we're talking about here is not simple money, we're talking about the entirety of someone's being. We're talking about the entirety of somebody's well-being. And so these, these men are at the mercy of whether or not their master is going to be gracious, whether or not their master was going to be generous. He could be as gracious and as generous to them as he wanted to be because they were entitled to zero dollars and they were entitled to zero kindness and they were entitled to zero opportunity. And so every dollar, every opportunity, every gift was totally at the benevolence of their master. And so what we see from this man, what we see in the life of this master is that this master is a gracious and generous master. That This is literally Jeff Bezos going to the guy that's taping up his boxes so that he can get your, your uh, Amazon Prime in two days, going down to the bottom of the assembly line and saying, hey, I've got about three billion, would you mind managing that instead? The dude taping boxes doesn't have to think real hard about it, right? Like, if you're with me, you're thinking, that's a lot of responsibility, but I'd like to give it a shot, right? I'd like to give that a shot to see what I can do, Jeff. You know, like, give, give me an opportunity. I'll, I'll make you something, right? And so what these men know, it was common in their day that if they made a profit for their master, their master would give them the opportunity to keep a percentage of it. 
So the more money they make their master in this opportunity is going to give them more money. They actually have an opportunity to advance their lot in life. They have an opportunity to have wealth when they are entitled and deserve no wealth at all. And so the question of the parable becomes apparent. The question of the parable becomes, what are you going to do with what the master has given to you? What are you going to do with the master, with, with what the master has given to you? What are you going to do with this opportunity? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the master of immeasurable wealth. Jesus is the master before whom Everest rises and praises his glory. He is the master that the oceans buckle and bow in his presence. All of the gold and diamonds of Africa, all of the oil in the Middle East, all of the technology in Silicon Valley are in his possession. The blaspheming Muslims, the scoffing atheists, the indifferent Christians, all of them were made by him and through him and for him. That even mankind made in the image of God is owned and in the possessionship of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That in the economy of God and in the economy of the kingdom of God, Fort Knox is like a cereal box. And you and I, we were born slaves. We were born dead in our trespasses. We were born sinning, not even knowing why we wanted to sin. We were born loving ourselves and rebelling against God. And we are owed nothing but debt except God intervened through Christ. God intervened through the master. We were at the mercy of his grace. We were at the mercy of his generosity. And in his mercy and in his grace and in his generosity has everything that you have. Everything that you have. Every baby and face and husband or wife that you look across the table at every night. All of the direct deposits that go into your checking account. The car that you drove here and are going to take to Cracker Barrel when you leave. All of the homes, whether they're big or they're small. The leisure, the health, everything that you have. The entirety of your well-being. The entirety of who you are. The entirety of who your family is. Has all been given at the hands of a merciful and benevolent God. And brothers and sisters, He is generous. And he is gracious because we didn't deserve a single ounce of any of it. And the question before us is the same question that was before all of the servants on that day. What are you going to do with what God has given to you? What are you going to do with the resources that God has given to you? What are you going to do with the health? that God has given to you? What are you going to do with the job that God has given to you? What are you going to do with the home and with the car and with the children and with the marriage? What are you going to do with the generosity and the opulence that God has brought into your life? Because he is the giver of all of it. So we see that the, the, uh, each one responds differently. We see two different response from, responses from three different men, don't we? The man who gets five talents and the man who gets two talents, they leave at once, it says. That the master departs and they don't go and have their fantasy football draft and, 
You know, they don't go and, and, and throw Madden up. They don't go out and play a round of golf. They don't go and do all of those things at once, it says. They go. They do not procrastinate a single second. They are going to take advantage of every minute they have to make as much as they can until the master returns. The master has already told him he's going on a long journey. He's going to be away for quite some time. But even with that knowledge, even with that information, knowing the capacity of their, merit, their master, knowing the grace and generosity of their opportunity, they don't want to procrastinate a single second. But now the man that gets one talent responds differently, doesn't he? The man that gets one talent, he responds differently. He says, you know what I'm going to do? The master, he's going to come back. He's going to come back and he's going to, he's going to expect me to be able to give him back what is his. So what I'm going to do while he's away, I'll be able to have some me time. I'll be able to have a good time. So he just digs a hole, buries the money, grabs a lawn chair and some lemonade, and he's just chilling. He's just chilling. He's just taking it easy. In his mind, he's thinking, you know, my life's really not that bad. I'm cool with the way things are. I don't need more than what I have. I'll just hang out, be content with, the, with pleasing my master while all those other guys are going and potentially going to lose what he's given them with all their investments. I'm just going to chill, drink some lemonade, have a little umbrella in my drink underneath the willow tree, and we're going to live the good life. Well, the master returns. And when the master returns, the master does what all of them would have naturally have expected him to do. He returns and he's there to settle accounts. I mean, you don't give someone millions or tens of millions, maybe even billions of dollars and come back and not expect them to show you what they've done with it, right? And so all of these men expect that they're going to they're gonna have to settle up with him. And when he comes, that's exactly what happens. And so you can imagine the dude with five talents, he's fired up about this opportunity. He's made 100% profit for the master. He has taken incredible wealth and he has multiplied it to make it even greater wealth. And so he is ecstatic about the opportunity that's before him. And so he goes and he presents first. He presents to the master. He says, you gave me five and you're not going to believe this, but I gave, I've got five more for you. You gave me a hundred million dollars. I turned it into two hundred million dollars. Come on, what do you have to say? And the master says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have done well. Come and share in the wealth of your master. Come and share in the joy of your master. And so we see he's being true to his word. You only had a little bit. I'm going to give you a lot now. You are only in charge of just a little bit of my kingdom, just a little bit of my estate, just a little bit of what I could have put you over. And so now, having seen your faithfulness with that, having seen your diligence with that, I'm going to take that little and I'm going to multiply that greatly. Then the man with two talents, he's seen all of this, right? I just imagine all of them standing there in a line. And so he steps forward. And he's like, oh, you like that 100% profit? Let me tell you about me. I did the same thing. You didn't give me 100 mil, you gave me 50 mil, but I took that 50 mil and turned it into 100 mil. So what are you going to say to me now? And he says the same exact thing, doesn't he? I think that's striking. He says the same exact thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with just a little bit. Now I'm going to multiply that greatly in your life. I'm going to multiply that greatly for you to know from now on, come and share in your master's joy. 
And Jesus here is teaching us about the nature of the kingdom of God. He has said from the beginning that this is what the kingdom is like. This is what the kingdom of God is, is, is pictured and demonstrated and illustrated for us. And so what he's showing us is that our reward in God's kingdom is not about bottom lines. Our reward in God's kingdom is not about our ability or our limitations. That, that God's reward to us will not have to do with the percentage of profits that we bring to him. Our reward in God's kingdom will not have to do with whether or not we have brought him the most money or the most people or the most convert. It's not going to have to do with the most of anything. In fact, our standing in God's kingdom has nothing to do with our ability, nothing to do with our limitations, nothing to do with all of those things at all. Our standing in the kingdom of God has only to do with our faithfulness and our obedience. Only to do with our faithfulness and our obedience. How often do we run around and say, you know, if I could just do that, if, if, if I were just a bit more capable, if I could talk like him, if I could have the resources that they have and be generous the way that they are generous, if, if, I, could just, if I could just work with my hands the way that he works with his hands, then, man, I would love to serve the church. If I just had the, the time that they have, if, if I was just in the same season of life that they are in, then I would do all of these incredible things that I know that God would have me to do. And if you ask people, would God, what would God have you do? They can line it out. They can tell you, this is what God, if I were being faithful, would have for me to do. But what we come up with in our lives is looking at our abilities, looking at our limitations, looking at our circumstances. I can't do everything that I want to do, everything that I feel like I should do, or I can't do everything that he does or she does, so I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything. But in the kingdom of God, the only limitation that you have from the reward of God is not your ability. It's not your circumstances. The only limitation that you have in the kingdom of God is your own disobedience. Your own disobedience. What will you do with what God has given to you? You know what the most remarkable word is in this passage? The most remarkable word in this passage is the word little. Little. If Jeff Bezos came and he gave you a billion dollars, would that feel little to you? It wouldn't to me. I mean, if he came and he wrote a check for a billion dollars, that's a lot of zeros, y'all. That's a lot of zeros. Like you can start stacking my lifetimes up on top of one another and I'm never going to get there. But you know what? From his perspective, it is little. He's got 150 more of those. He's got 150 more of those. And so it, it feels little. It looks little from his perspective. Have you ever considered that from the perspective of God, everything that you have is little? Have you ever considered from the perspective of God that everything in this earth is little? That every job, every house, every car, every 401k, every bank account, savings account, every paycheck, all of them are little in the economy of God because God does not operate in a deficit economy. God operates with an everlasting, overwhelming surplus. And so we have, and we, we look at this and we think, 
what am I supposed to do with my little stuff? What am I supposed to do with my little house? What am I supposed to do with my little family? What am I supposed to do with with my little car? What am I supposed to do with my little job? And we look at everything that we have, and we look at our abilities, and we look at our health, and we look at, look at our age, and we, we look at our experience, and we look at our intellect, and we look at our education, and we go through there, and every single one of us, almost to a T, will say, little, 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 I can't do anything. But brothers and sisters, from the perspective of God, from the perspective of a generous and benevolent master, all of it is little. All of it is little. Except that in the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. In the kingdom of God, that which is small, in the hands of God, in the offered to the glory of God, can be taken from little and expounded and multiplied applied greatly to his glory and to your good. We go and we look at all of these menial tasks and we think, what good is that? For some of you, God has called you to be pushing mops and unlocking doors for the glory of God. And it feels so menial. For some of you, God has called you at this season to to love children and to care for children and to minister to children or teenagers. And you just wonder, are they even listening? Do they even care about what I'm saying? It feels so little and it feels so menial. You get up every single day and you go to your job. You come home every single day to the same family and it feels mundane. It feels menial. And you're wondering, like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, what? There's nothing significant about my life except that, brothers and sisters, if you will take the little that you have and offer it to an everlasting surplus God, God will take your little and multiply it greatly to his own glory. And one day, he's going to take the mop out of your hand. One day, he's going to take the keys out of your hand. One day, he's going to take you out of your little kingdom, and he's going to replace your mop with a crown. What are you doing with what God has given to you? What are you doing with what God has given to you? Are you minimizing it? Are you dismissing it? Are you wasting it? Or are you taking what God has given to you and are you trying to leverage it to the best of your ability so that more boys and girls hear the truth of the gospel, so that more dads are brought into the kingdom of God, so that to the nations and to the ends of our community, more and more people have the hope that comes with the good news. What are you doing with what you have? You see a different response from the man that's only given one talent, don't we? The man that's given one talent, he goes and he's witnessed what's just happened. Can you imagine? And he feels small. Don't you know he feels small? Like, these men have made the master 100% profit. They took 100 and made it 200. They made, they took, he took 20 and made it 40. And this cat hasn't made him a penny. I mean, the only thing that he has to offer are some some dirt-stained bills, right? And so he goes, and and you can imagine him digging up his his little treasure or whatever, and he comes, and it's like still covered in dust and dirt and filth, and he's like, hey, here you go, welcome back, you know, so glad you're home, here's what I have for you. And, and And he rehearses a speech that you almost are certain that he came up with ahead of time, right? 
He, he runs through this speech that you can be almost certain that, that he's rehearsed this again and again. He says, look, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know that you are a man that sows where he does, or reaps where he does not sow. I know that you are a man that gathers where he scattered no seed. I know who you are. I know that you are a fearsome man and that you are a man that no one wants to cross. I know who you are. So I did the prudent thing. I did the wise thing. I did the safe thing. I dug a hole, planted the money, and I have every single coin that you gave to me. Here it is. And there's, a, there's, a, there's something that you can read, like English speakers, we read through this really quick. Look at verse 26 with me. Look at verse 26 with me. Because we can miss this so easily. Easily. It says, but his master answered him, you, weak, you wicked and slothful servant. Now what, look at this. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered what I scattered no seed. In the ESV, do you see the question mark there? You see the question mark there? Other translations, they phrase it differently. Like, if you would have known, if you would have believed. See, I've always read that as him reciting back what this man had just said to him. That's not what he's doing. The master is looking to this man, and this is the pivot point of the whole text. He looks to this man, he says, you think you know me? You think you know who I am? You think you understand who your master is? You think you can even begin to comprehend my wealth, my capacity, what I can do through you? You think you even understand a fragment of who I am? You don't know me at all. To hell with him. See, this man, this man thought he knew who his master was, but he didn't know him at all. This man had convinced himself in his mind what he must do in light of who his master is. But the truth was, he didn't know who his master was at all. And his master comes back and he proves it to him. See, if he would have believed that his master reaped where he did not sow and gathered where he did not scatter, he would have been sure to go and to invest that money so that he could witness what his master was able to do and what his master was really capable of. But instead, he lived a timid life and lived a reluctant life and he didn't do anything with it at all and he held back only to go and give him the bare things that the master had given him to begin with. What the master condemns this man for is not for not making him enough money. He's not condemned for not increasing his bottom line enough. He is condemned for his unbelief. For his unbelief. He's condemned because he doesn't love his master the way that he claims to love his master with his mouth. Because if he would have loved his master the way that he claims to love his master, and if he would have known his master the way he claims to know his master, he would have been busy and diligent about his master's work, taking what his master had given him and multiplying it for the good of his master. But this man took no risk. This man lived timid. This man lived reluctant. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, do you know what Jesus, what God is using Jesus' delay for? Do you know what he's using it for in the life of the church? As we await the return of Christ, you know what God is doing among us? He is revealing to us the character of our faith. He is revealing to us the character of our faith. 
He is revealing to us whether or not we really believe the things that we say, because if we really believe the things that we say, it will be evidence in the productivity of our lives. It will be evidence by the faithfulness of our obedience. It will be evidence by the things that we do with what we have been given for the glory of Christ. That you can say that you know the master, you can say you believe in the master, but until that is evidence in the faithfulness and the obedience of your life, all you're doing with the things that you're saying is heaping onto your own head the condemnation of the master. See, this man, he didn't know his master at all. Because in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, it is totally irrational to live a timid, reluctant life. In the kingdom of God, if our master is who he says he is, if our master has done what he says he has done, if he's going to do all that he has said he's going to do, we are fools to be timid and reluctant in our obedience because God can take whatever little we have, whatever limited resources we have, whatever job we have, whatever family we have, whatever money we have, whatever paycheck we have, whatever retirement we have, whatever time we have, whatever meals we have. He can take whatever we have and he can multiply it radically passionately, expansively, to the ends of the earth for his own glory. He can take you, who nobody's ever heard of. He can take you that nobody knows, and he can make let you transform communities and families and countries. He can take a church like this one in the middle of nowhere on the edge of Highway 9 and 78 that is like in meeting in a gymnasium, and he can use us to expand his glory to places that you and I can't even articulate. God can do that. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, I believe that God is calling us to begin taking bold steps as a church. That God is calling us to begin taking risks as a church. Next week will be my fifth year. I will be celebrating my fifth anniversary as being your pastor. And I feel convinced that what God is calling us to do is in years 6 to 10 to take bold steps and bold moves for God's glory. I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't know what it all it's going to look like. But here's what I know. The God that divides the Red Sea, the God that rains bread down from heaven, the God that guides his people by pillars of fire and pillars of cloud, the God who does and, and slays the giant and coughs up the fish, the God who feeds 5,000 with a, with a sack lunch. The God who does that is our God. He is the God of Iron City Baptist Church. And brothers and sisters, it's not too late for us. It's not, we're just getting started here. We, we have beat in our chest. We have air in our lungs. We have paychecks and jobs and money. We have families and people and children. We have beautiful talent up on set. We have all the things that we need, and God has brought us here for such a time as this. We cannot bury what the Lord has given to us. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us press on. Let us see our county and our community as a frontier. The two plus million people in the state of Alabama that are not yet born again, let us go to them. Let us go to Swaziland and Mexico and Salt Lake to the 2% that are not that are Mormon, uh, less than 2% that are not Mormon. Lord, let us go to them 
because our God is this God, and he is a generous and benevolent master. Brothers and sisters, let us not be defined by cowardice and timidity, but by courage and boldness. And if we are defined by faith, courage, and boldness, if our God is who he says he is, we will witness what we could not witness otherwise. Brothers and sisters, I'm tired of seeing what we're capable of. I'm tired of seeing what we're able to do. I'm tired of seeing how we can advance our mission by our methods and our ways. Brothers and sisters, let us see what the Lord can do. Let us see what God can advance. Let us be a spiritual people in the midst of a secular age that we can press back and push back the gates of hell so that they might retreat at our sight. They are great, but our Christ is greater. We are limited, but he is unlimited. He has no deficit in heaven, only a surplus. Brothers and sisters, may we press on for God's glory. Let's pray together.